you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, turn to Matthew 25. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 30. And when we get into the story, the, the parable that Jesus is telling us as we're walking through this series about the return of the king, Jesus coming back, and, and kind of the end times, the whole process of walking through that. We've been through that the last few weeks. We're looking at another um, uh, parable that Jesus uses to illustrate another point of preparedness for us. And as we will read through this, you'll see at the core of what Jesus is getting at in, in people who follow him is this thing called fear and how fear controls us, and it limits us, and it keeps us from really, truly following Jesus in our life. And it's interesting, as we were kind of walking through this week, and many times the Lord does this, and in this passage coming, and you know, talking about fear, and uh, this last Thursday I got a chance to take a little bit of time away, which I try to do occasionally, where I go just by myself, uh, with nobody else, just me and Jesus, just to listen to him and to, just to be with him. I've talked, talked a little bit about that. And this last Thursday, I had a chance to go to the beach, which I love being back in Southern California because you can go to the beach and not freeze to death. Like when you're in Oregon, they don't call it the beach. They call it the coast. You go to the coast. So, so I went to the beach, and uh, I just, as I would usually, I don't bring an agenda for the day because I just want the Lord to lead me. And so I sat down, and, and I spent about an hour and a half just sitting and looking at the sea, at the ocean, as I read through the entire book of Revelation. I just thought, I'm just led there, I'm going to start reading, and I started reading, and boom, 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 and it was the craziest experience. If you have never done that before, you should do that, because the book of Revelation, the way it's written, and the way that the, this vision that God gives to John unfolds, is it's better understood in one sitting, if you can understand it, because it's got some crazy stuff. But as, you, as I was reading through that, and especially in this light of that we're in, the, in this end time series and talking about Jesus' return, you know that Jesus gives John these just these crazy vivid visions of what's happening and, and what's going to happen and with different kind of imagery and different symbols and all kinds of things that are going on. But you can kind of trace the, the building theme and, and that you feel the huge kind of climax and the tension points and all the things that are there and, and the persecution and the death and all kinds of stuff and judgment. It's all in there. And then eventually you get to chapter 21 and then chapter 22 and there is this huge sense of relief. Because you realize God wins. And if God wins, that means we win. And that someday in, in, the, in Revelation 21, it says that he will be our God and we will be his people. And there will be no more death, mourning, sorrow, pain. None of that. It's all gone. It's kind of the point of what this is. And that's the coolest thing is that God loves people enough that he wants to be with them forever. That's really what the sum total is of all of us in humanity and human history is moving towards God's desire is wanting to be with us. And through his word and through the words of Jesus, he tells you and I how we can be with him forever. Another interesting thing yesterday, I had another conversation which continues to happen. And no offense to those of you who are over the age of like 35 or 40, which is where I am over the age of 40. But I keep having recurring conversations with 20 and 30-somethings in our city and in the church overall. And there's always a theme that seems to run through it. And that is, the theme is, I, you know, I was raised in the church or I have some church background or some religious background, but it just kind of left me wanting. There wasn't a whole lot there. It was kind of the faith of my parents and kind of had to go to church and do this and do that. And, but, you know, I'm, I'm awakening to this reality that there's a whole lot more to following Jesus than I've been told. And, and some of those who have traveled overseas and they've been invo involved with mission in different cultures and they've seen God do amazing things, they come back here to the U.S. and there's this sense of frustration in them. Like, wait a second, the God that I just experienced when I was living outside of my comfort zone, overcoming my fear, is not the God that seems to be present in the church and in our culture. And there's this growing unrest and tension in them. And even though I'm over the age of 40, I go, yes, I feel the same thing. I feel that there's so much fear and control and limiting of sometimes in our own culture and in the church that many times we miss the incredible risk, adventure, and excitement, and danger, and sacrifice of following Jesus because we wrap it up into this, I go to church, and I'm a good person, and I hope I hang on to the end, and that's the sum total of what it means to know Jesus. So when I, I sit there, I'm thinking, I keep hearing this, I keep hearing this, and I think it's because one of the things that we've, we've missed is what Jesus is talking about in this parable today is that we have yet to really face our greatest fears. And our greatest fears are not spiders or heights or being in a closed environment or panophobia. We don't, it's not those aren't our greatest fears. Our greatest fears are what we have to face when we choose to follow Jesus and surrender everything to him. Those are the greatest fears. Those are the most costly ones. 
So with that in mind this morning, I'm going to read, I'm going to read this a long portion of Scripture, but I want you to hear the story or the illustration or the parable that Jesus tells to illustrate being prepared and, and dealing with fear in terms of his, his coming again. So verse 14 of Matthew 25, Jesus says again, It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought uh, the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, You entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Aren't you glad that you came to hear that from Jesus this morning? These are tough words. This is is important for you and I to go again back to Jesus. What did Jesus say? How does he describe what it means to follow him? How do we anticipate his return? And we come back to this. In the core of what you and I are seeing about what Jesus is communicating in this long parable is, is embedded in verse 25, where the wicked servant said, I was afraid. That's the sum total, really, what Jesus is getting at in this. It was his fear that caused him to not do what he should have done. And so when you and I, many times people will use this analogy or use this parable and they'll talk about money or they will talk about how talented somebody is or how gifted they are and that's part of it. But this is much bigger. Really what, what we're talking about here and we'll, we'll get into it is that the master has made an investment into his servants and is expecting that he's going to get something more than what he's given them in return. And the greater analogy of what Jesus is communicating is what has Jesus given us? Is it money? No, we know it's not about money with Jesus. What is the investment that he has made in us? Is it the fact that he's given us personalities and certain skills and traits and things like that? Yeah, that's part of it, but that's not really it. What is the investment that Jesus has made in us that he is expecting to have some return when he comes back? It's his life. It's the fact that the God of the universe loved us so much that Jesus voluntarily became human died on the cross for you and I. And you and I, if you've been in the church, like, yeah, I know, I know. And he rose from the dead, and we celebrate Easter. But just think about this room. The God of the universe sacrificed himself for us, and then on top of that says, this is the life you're supposed to lead. And by the way, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit, who will be deposited in you when you say yes to following me, who will give you everything that you need to live the life you're supposed to lead. He's given us everything. He held back nothing for us. In fact, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says that, in fact, Jesus became poor, not talking about money, talking about who he was as God, so that we could become rich. He has invested everything of who he is into us, expecting that there will be some kind of return with what we live our life out to be. But you and I have to come to grips with, we're just like, sometimes just like the servant in verse 25, I'm afraid. And so I want to talk about that this morning. First of all, focus on some of the, the, the fears, the, some of the things that fear will produce in us that we will respond similarly to how this servant has responded to his master. So look at verse 24 and verse 26. The first thing that fear produces in us is it produces excuses. It says, And the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. 
And then verse 26, it says, the master's reply was, So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Now, when the master replies to a servant that way, is he verifying that that was true of him? Actually, he's not. Because many times we read that and think, wow, you mean he's kind of unfair, that he's kind of stealing stuff, that it wasn't, wasn't really his? No. The master was replying back to this servant and saying to him, do you really think that that's the kind of master that I am? That's why he's repeating back the question. He's not saying that's who I am. He's saying, how could you think that would be true of me? See, because what he sees is going on is what that servant has done is he's used his master as the reason that he didn't do what he was supposed to do. In fact, it's crazy. He's blaming it on the one who gave him the gold in the first place. He's blaming it on his master. Because you're such a hard person, because you're so difficult, I was afraid to do anything, so I did nothing. So really, it's not my fault. It's your fault because you're such a difficult person. That's what he's saying to him. I think, wow, that's, that's pretty crazy that he would respond back that way. But think about our lives. Don't anybody want to, willing to admit that when you were scared once or twice in your life, you made an excuse to not do something you were afraid to do? I know, I have many times. It's part of human nature. It's part of our, the way we function in our sinfulness is that we, we have a tendency when we're confronted with the truth or when we're confronted with something either we were supposed to do or we didn't do, that we find a way to try to get out of it through an excuse and we blame anything and everyone around us except ourselves. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember the story when, when Eve eats the fruit and then God shows up. It's like, uh-oh, the party's over. God's here, right? He shows up and so... He, he says, how do you know that you're naked? How do you know these things? And then what does Adam say? This is so great. So what happened here? And Adam says, the woman you gave me ate the fruit. In, in literally what, how many words is that? Like five or ten words. He mas- man- manages to, to make the excuse to be on God and on his wife. What a great guy, right? He blames the God of the universe and the woman that the God of the universe gave him, that she ate the fruit. Now, we can't know for sure, but most likely when this whole scenario unfolded with Eve and the serpent and her eating the fruit, Adam was very present. He was there. He just was passive. He did nothing. And so he has this excuse. And, and I think sometimes you and I, we, we become very good at making up excuses why we can't do something in following Jesus. Why, and, and if we would get down to the core of it, what is it? Honestly, I'm afraid I'm afraid of what people will think. I'm afraid we'll have to give up. I'm afraid that I will fail in doing this. And so therefore, what do I choose to do? I choose to do nothing because of fear. Second thing that fear produces in you and I is it produces isolation. So going on verse 25, the first part of verse 25, this is the, the, the wicked servant's response. He says, So I was afraid and I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. Now, for you and I, would think, well, that's stupid. Why would you? It's like you going home today. Someone gives you, you know, a check for $1,000, and you go in your front yard, and you dig a hole, and you bury it, thinking, I'm good. It's going to be safe. See, in, in Jesus' day, that was normal. You had really you had two options. You could go put it in the bank, hoping that you'd get some interest so you'd gain some money back. Or if you really wanted to keep your investment safe, you kept it away from everybody. And that's why they would, they would dig, literally, they would have a field or have their property, they would dig a hole and they would bury what was valuable. That's why when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, he said it's like a man who uncovered a treasure in a field, which we're like, what is he treasure hunting? No, he knew that people historically had buried valuable things in a field that they had vacated and there's a chance there could be something valuable. So this is normal. But what it was saying is that I'm, I'm afraid to lose this. So the only way I can keep it is to make sure I keep it safe. And the only way it can be safe is if it's isolated away from everybody else. So he buries it in the ground. That kind of looks like our life sometimes. We equate isolation with safety. That somehow, if I'm integrated with the culture, I'm integrated with the world, and I'm trying to follow Jesus in that way, I'm going to be stained by the world, I'm going to be corrupted, and therefore the only safe bet is to isolate myself from my surroundings and make sure that I'm safe. Safety in the Christian life is actually the most unsafe thing that you and I could ever do. Because what Jesus is talking about here is when we choose that, we default to, I don't want to lose anything, therefore I'll just maintain what I have, so I'll close ranks and make sure that nothing bad happens to me. That's the worst place to be. That's the thing that Jesus actually calls wicked. See, because there, there's, a, there's this, 
this facade that safety sometimes creates for us, that we think we're really safe, but we're not. We're not, because we, we can go through great, go to great lengths in our life to make sure that we protect ourselves from anything bad or evil or challenging or risky or difficult or persecuting in our life and do work really hard. But sooner or later, you and I, because we're human and we live in the world, something's going to get us. Something's going to penetrate our safe little world that we've created. And then what are we going to do? Because our safety wasn't built on Jesus. Our protection wasn't built on his power and what he wants to do. And our life wasn't with him. It was with us. I had a friend who, a number of years ago, his dad passed away. And when his dad passed away, they were separating out all their belongings to all all the different kids in the family. And so his brother ended up getting his dad's truck. Now, my friend's dad was a mechanic his whole life, really good mechanic. And so he, he took very good care of his own cars. In fact, I think at the time, I don't know if it's for sure, but it's around this, I think it was about this. About, he had a truck that was 14 years old that he had taken care of meticulously. He waxed it. He made sure that the engine ran well and, and the interior was nice. I mean, he cleaned it all the time. And 14-year-old truck, he goes to my friend's brother. And when he got it, it had 400 miles on it in 14 years. It was a Nissan pickup, and it was spotless. There was no damage on it. Nothing, I mean, the paint was perfect. The interior was as low. It was just literally just driven off the lot. It was like brand new. And so they're like, wow, Dad. I mean, they didn't even know how well Dad had taken care of his truck. They were marveled at it. And so that night, he takes Dad's truck, and he drives it home, and he parks it in his driveway. The next morning, it was gone. Somebody stole it. Never to see it again. Didn't recover it. It was gone. In one moment, 14 years of investment, of parking it in the garage, washing it probably every day, waxing it, making sure it's nice and neat. 400 miles doesn't even qualify for an oil change. He barely took it anywhere. 14 years ended up in what? Somebody taking it. See, that's the facade that safety creates. Ah, I protect, I make sure I'm okay, everything's right. And then suddenly something invades your world. And now that safety that you try to create is no longer there. Because when you and I create the bubble of safety, the main motivating factor in us is that we're afraid. We are afraid to step out into risk. We are afraid of failure. We're afraid of the world. We're afraid of all kinds of things. And Jesus says the one thing in this whole passage he calls wicked is fear. And it's fear that causes us to be crippled or paralyzed in our life, which leads to the next thing, the third thing. Fear also, also produces, and going to verse 25, the next, next part, is it produces passivity. So going on, it says, the servant said, see, here is what belongs to you. Now, now you and I would read that and think, okay, hey, at least he didn't lose anything. At least he returned back to his master what his master gave to him in the first place. You think, well, that's a pretty good deal, isn't it? The phrase he used when he said, here is what belongs to you, actually was a phrase that was used in many Jewish transactions. And what he was saying, what the statement is made when you use those words was, as you handed something back to somebody, you were saying to them, I am no longer responsible for this any further. In in other words, I'm, I'm washing my hands of this. I'm returning back to you what you gave me. It's not my responsibility anymore. I did nothing with what you gave me, and now it's now it's your responsibility, not anymore. I return back to you what you gave me. I didn't do any more, but I didn't do any less. It's like, you know, when you're playing sports, you ever watch a team play not to lose? They usually end up doing what? Losing. Instead, if you play to win, you're not worried about losing. You're focused on winning. It's the same thing here. Many of us live our entire Christian life playing not to lose. And what that equates to is we end up, do, end up doing nothing. Nothing in terms of what God has invested in our lives. That's why James 4.17, he gives us a really very clear definition of what sin is. Probably the best biblical definition. He says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. You know, you and I will know what we're supposed to do. And we choose to do what? To be passive like Adam was in the garden. And much like the excuse, if you, if you recall, remember when Jesus came to the man who was by the pool that would have these special kind of healing elements to them, and there's, there was this, this kind of superstition when, when the, an angel would stir the waters and people would get into the water, they would be healed. And so Jesus comes to the man and he says, he asks the funniest thing, he asks a man who cannot walk, do you want to be healed? 
Well, you think, come on, Jesus, of course he does. But Jesus asked the question, and if you remember that story in John, the man's response spoke volumes. He said, yeah, I, I, yeah, I want to be healed, but every time the water gets stirred, there's no one here to help me get into the water, and somebody else always gets in the water first, and then they get healed. What was he saying? It's not my fault. I, I'm here trying to do what I can, but what was he doing? He was doing nothing. Expecting others will do something for him when Jesus is asking him, do you really want to be healed? Because maybe deep down inside that man, he thought about what a healed life would look like. That means he'd have to take care of himself. That means people wouldn't have compassion on anymore. He would lose a sense of his identity, even though it may not have been the best identity. All those things factored in. That's why Jesus said, do you really want to be healed? And I think sometimes Jesus says to you and I, do you really want to follow me? Do you really want to live a life that's more than what you're living? Do you really want to be able to stand before me at the end and hear good and faithful instead of wicked and lazy? Those are questions that you and I have to come to grips with. See, if you and I look at our lives and realize, because if you've come to Jesus, he's deposited his Holy Spirit in you. He's given you everything that you need to live the life he wants you to live that's going to give a great investment, a return on his investment in the end. But you and I have to make a decision to shift out of neutral. And you and I are presented with those kinds of opportunities every single day of our life. And they come in the form where, where you and I end up asking ourselves a question, or maybe we ask other people a question, and that is this. Somebody has to do something. Who's going to do it? We come across those things all the time. I've shared about my friend Dan Bush, who's in, in Newburgh, who he was the one that really started uh, this thing called adopt block for the way we did it. Dream Center has a different format of adopt block It's a little different. But in Newburgh, we had a, an adopt block process that was a little bit different, a little bit more relational. And it started because of Dan Bush, not because he said, hey, I want to do adopt block He had nothing to do with adopt block but he was a vice principal who was the enforcer for every disciplinary issue in his school. Every time a kid brought drugs to school or didn't show up to school or didn't obey whatever they were supposed to be, he was the enforcer. He would go to the parents and say, hey, so-and-so did this. And he started to realize as he did that, he kept going back to the same apartment complex over and over again. Almost 75% of the disciplinary issues in the school related to this one specific area in our city. And we were sitting down having lunch one day, and he said to me, he said, John, he said, listen, every time I walk in, he goes, I can see it on their face. I can see people are scattering like, oh, here comes Dan Bush. Here comes the enforcer. We don't want to be around. Something bad has happened. And he said, I look at their families and the brokenness and the, the, the poverty and all that they're struggling with. And he looked at me, and he said, somebody has to do something. And I, just as a pastor, I've heard that so many times. And usually the way the conversation goes is, and then they look at me and say, what are you going to do? My response is, no, what are you going to do? Dan didn't say that. And he said, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm like, whoa, this is a different conversation here. Dan was one of our small group leaders. He said, I'm going to take my small group, and we're going to go down there once a month, and I'm just going to break out my barbecue, and we're just going to barbecue hamburgers and hot dogs just to get people out of their apartments, just to build relationships, just to start talking to people, just to get them out. And they did it the first month, and he had like eight people in his small group, and they did it, and they had like maybe 20 people show up, and some people were like, what in the world are you doing here at our apartment complex? Fast forward, long story short, after probably less than maybe a year and a half to a year, there were 150 people showing up every month for a barbecue, and there were about 20 people from the church facilitating, and the local burger joint that was kind of the popular place in town, the guy volunteered to bring his mobile grill and pay for all of the food. There were so many lives that were changed and transformed through those relationships. Why? Because Dan came to this place and said, somebody has to do something. And if that comes to your mind, guess who God's calling to do something? It's you. It's not somebody else. That's part of that investment. God has invested in you for eternity, and eternity is at stake for people around you. And that starts with a conversation. It starts with walking across the street to your neighbor. It starts with talking to somebody who freaks you out. Some of us can't even talk to somebody we don't know. I know what that's like, but I've learned to overcome that fear because it's for the sake of Jesus and that person's eternity that I get over my fear of talking to strangers. There's so much at stake. But you and I have to be willing to respond to that question. Somebody has to do something. I am that somebody. God has invested in me so that I would be able to live that out obediently to him. And then the fourth thing that, that fear will produce in us is it produces laziness. Verse 26, it says, His master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. Why would he call him a lazy servant? Because really what laziness is, 
is doing nothing. And there's a reason that laziness, I believe, is included because laziness, for many of us, not all of us, but for many of us, laziness is a cover for our fear. Because we're afraid of something, we pull back and we decide to not do anything. In fact, that's why even some of, if you go, you read through at the end of the Gospels when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane with, with the, uh, the disciples and he goes to pray and he tells them to pray and you remember he comes back and what are they doing? They're praying, no, they're sleeping. Why couldn't they just pray? And it's interesting because you think, well, they just, were they tired? No, because they knew, they had an idea what was coming. And part of the human mechanism of dealing with things that we're afraid of is sleep. It is. People who go through long periods of depression will sleep longer. Why? Because you can somehow disengage from your depression. It's part of who we are as human. But laziness is that thing, is that laziness is if I don't have to try and fail, then somehow I'm, how I'm, I'm okay. But if I know I have to try and then I could fail, that's like the worst possible scenario. That's why we become lazy. And so for this servant, this wicked servant, it was better for him not to try to put that one bag of gold on deposit and then somehow lose it. It was better for him to bury it in the ground and do absolutely nothing in his mind. But Jesus says, no, that, that laziness in you, that's, that's wicked. You've been given so much. You've had so much invested in you. You don't have the right to say, I'm going to do nothing. Because when you and I come to Jesus, we know better. We get the big picture. We understand what's going on. We're now accountable for that. And we can't pass the buck to anybody else and say, hey, it's their responsibility. It's their job. It's the professional missionary. It's this person. It's that person. It's somebody who's more gifted. No, it's us. Because when we stand before Jesus someday, I won't be standing with you. I'll have to stand for myself. And you can't say, hey, Pastor John. No, Pastor John, nothing. You did, did you read my words? Did you know what you were supposed to do? Yeah, well, it's not about anybody else. It's about were you taking what I've given you and making the most of your life? Which leads to the next few things I want to cover before we conclude. And Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to read into exactly what Jesus is going to say when you and I come face to face, but I'm going to, I'm going to just take some, some calculated guesses on some of the things that you and I might want to consider we're going to be accountable for when we stand before Jesus someday. When he returns, which really should be a great celebration, it shouldn't be like, oh, shoot, he's back. It should be like, he's here. And if we're following him, it will be. It'll be a celebration. We'll get excited about it. But the first thing you and I need to understand when it comes to Jesus' return, what he might be asking is this. He may ask to you and I, did you value what I gave you? So let me, let me read verse 14 and 15. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two, and to another, the third one he gave one bag, each according to his ability, that, and then he went on his journey. So those bags of gold were extremely valuable. The estimates of what they were worth is in the tens of thousands of dollars, potentially even over a million dollars. This was a huge investment. The master wasn't giving him pocket change. He wasn't giving him a few dollars. He was giving him, could have been, the majority of his wealth. He was giving to his servants and trusting to them that they would bring back a return. So this was a huge risk and a huge investment in these servants that he was making. And, and that has to weigh on us because that translates to if Jesus is using this analogy to demonstrate that a master is investing a huge amount of money, a huge point of value into their servants, how much more the God of the universe, who in Jesus came down and walked the planet and lived like you and I, only to suffer the most horrific death a human being can suffer, to overcome our sin and then to rise from the dead, to conquer death so that you and I could be with God forever. That is the greatest investment any person can ever make in another human being. There is no amount of money that comes close to equating that. That's the investment that we live with. That's the joy that we get to experience, that God wants to, to be with us so much that Jesus sacrificed everything for us. There isn't anything that has greater value than that. And if you and I will allow that to sink in for just a moment, I want just maybe put it in, in the, these terms. Think about if you've ever given some money to somebody or you've given something to someone and and. It wasn't maybe even a benevolence need. It was more you're kind of investing in them, hoping that maybe they would kind of 
get their lives together or they would kind of get things. It's like, say that someone came to you and say you're in a terrible situation. You're in debt way, way above what you can pay and, and your life's upside down and you don't know what you're going to do. And someone comes to you and says, listen, I'm going to write you a check for a million dollars because I see something in you that if you get out of debt and you get freed from where you're at, your life's going to be worth something. You're going to be able to do something with your life. And you're like, yes, please. And they write you the check for a million dollars. And then they come back a year later. And they say, hey, how's this last year been? They're like, well, you know, not so good. Like, not so good. I gave you a million dollars. Well, yeah, you know, I, I took that million and, and I paid off my debt. But I thought, wow, I still have more money left over. And there's a lot of things I really like to buy. But I was in so much debt before I couldn't buy them. But now I could buy them. And so I started to buy things. And before you know it, I got in more debt. And, and then I wanted to be really nice to people. And I wanted people to like me. So I started giving my money away. And I gave it away. And then before I know it, I was in debt. And now actually I'm in more debt than I was before you gave me the million dollars. How do you think that person would feel about their investment? A little frustrated? Maybe a little angry? Maybe a little taken advantage of? I'll put it this way. Maybe it's not you. So let's just think about it. We're all taxpayers. Well, at least we should be taxpayers, right? I know we don't like that title. I, I agree. I mean, everything we do in our culture is taxed, right? If you drive, it's taxed. We've got another gas tax coming in January. You know, if you buy something, it's taxed. If you work, you're taxed. If you sneeze, you're taxed. We all get taxed on everything, Right? So when that money is given, we have this expectation of our government and those who work for the government that they take the money that we have invested by taxes and they use it wisely. If you find a government official who's taking vacations on the government's dime and they're getting benefits that you wouldn't get and you're paying for it, does that irritate you slightly? Yes. We just came through an election cycle. Some campaigns were built on that, exposing politicians who've used their position and their money, the government's money, for their own personal benefit. Most of them don't end up getting a second term because that irritates us. Now think about it on a much grander scale. The God of the universe has invested far more than taxes or a million dollars into us, expecting that we won't just hang on to it, that we won't go buried in the ground, that we will actually invest it into other people so that he has not a return of money when he comes back, but he has a return of people. That's the return he's looking for. Who did you disciple? Who did you take this wonderful thing called salvation and the power of my Holy Spirit living in you? And who did you give that to as well? Who did you tell people about me? So they discovered what you already knew, that I loved you so much that I gave my life for you. Who did you disciple to, so that now you can stand before God and you can say, I discipled them. I was a part of their life. I helped with a group of people called the church to help them understand who you are. Now they're here today. That's who he's going to be looking for because he's made that investment in you and I. Second thing that you and I need to be aware of that he may ask us is, did you risk everything for me? Going on verse 16 and 17, it says, the man received five bags of gold at once and he put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags, he did the same thing. He invested. So what, what did he do? He risked his master's money. All of us, maybe you've made an investment and it hasn't turned out well, or maybe you made an investment and it turned out really well. There's always risk involved when you invest something. But what you and I have to understand is what the servants were asked to risk wasn't theirs. They didn't put one dime of their own money into this. They, they weren't, in a sense, they risked nothing. What the master was asking them to risk was what he already gave them to risk. Which means, even if they lost money when they, when they risked it, when they invested it, they still lost nothing. How can you and I lose what isn't ours in the first place? You and I can't lose. If we give everything away in this life, everything comes from God anyway, and we risk it all for him, and in the world's eyes, we lose it all, we still gain. Because we're not losing what is ours anyway. We're, God's not asking us to, to risk us. He's asking us to risk him. And in the process, that means we have to be willing to lay down our life for him. See, there's this tension that we have to live in all the time. Once you come to Jesus, you discover something. You are dead. Wait a second. I thought I was supposed to be alive. Yeah, you are. But in order for you to be alive, death has to occur first. That's the whole principle of resurrection. 
Death, we always think, oh, death comes, or life comes first, then death. No, when you follow Jesus, death comes first, then life. That means we have to die to the old way of living, die to the old way of thinking, die to what our agenda was for life, die to what we think our life's supposed to be about, to be resurrected to what Jesus wants for our life. That's why Paul says in, in, in Galatians 2, he talks about that we have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer us. We don't live anymore. It's not our life to live. It's Jesus living through us. It's his life. You know, and, and one of the things, and, and I've known the Lord for a long time, but I go through these seasons where, where I have to come to grips with my own brokenness and my own selfishness and me grasping for my own happiness in life and finding the more I grasp for happiness, the more unhappy I am. Anybody relate to that? Because you can never attain it. But then when I start reading again what Jesus says about if I want to find my life, I have to lose it that I have to deny myself, all those kinds of things. And then I realize in areas of my life, when I start to actually apply those, when I start to deny what I want and I, and I allow it to be what Jesus wants or what somebody else needs, I find out this amazing thing. I'm happier. I don't, it doesn't make any sense. Because what happiness is something, you know, we have what, that's the pursuit of happiness is what we think is part of our God-given right as an American. But the pursuit of happiness leads to sadness, doesn't it? The pursuit of Jesus leads to happiness. And if we got that, to realize it's not about me. And God has invested everything. And so therefore, I, I have to risk it all. And the person who risks everything is the person who's actually the most fulfilling in their life. Read Paul. Paul risked everything. Read the book of Philippians. If you want to see something that is so counterintuitive to us, Paul writing from prison and saying how joyful he is. And saying, even though he's incarcerated, for what? Doing the right thing, how he's learned the secret of being content. Even though at points he's been hungry, he's been naked, he's been beaten, he's been in prison, he's been persecuted, almost killed many times, he still is joyful. How in the world is that possible? Because the old Paul died a long time ago. And his life is no longer about him. And so when you live in that state, you you no longer have to grasp for things. It kind of is, there's a picture that I always have in my mind of, when my life starts to go down that road of grasping for things to try to make me happy instead of just letting go and surrendering. I think it's probably still on YouTube, but there's a few years ago I was watching bungee jumping, which scares me to death, okay? Some of you are far more courageous than I am in that area. But there was this one gal, she was bungee jumping, and she was up on the tower, and it wasn't, I mean, it was about a 150-foot tower, which is decent size, but today's standards, there's like, I think Australia has one that's like seven or 800 feet. It's like ridiculous. Um, so she's up there, and you can tell she doesn't want to be there. Somebody pushed her up, you know, got her up there and said, you really should do this. And so she's standing at the edge, edge of the tower. She's got, the, she's got all the, the gear on in the harness, and it's around her ankles, and she's shaking physically. You can see this. And, and they're giving her the countdown, and you're counting, you know, down, and finally they get to one, and then, and then she's, you know, like, jump. And so she, can, she kind of scoots out a little farther. And I couldn't tell from the video, but they might have, you know, pushed her just a little bit to help her to go. But you can tell as soon as she starts to go over the edge she starts to second-guess the whole process. So as she clears the tower, she turns and she grabs the platform. And now she's dangling 150 feet, probably 200 feet above the ground at this point because it's about 150-foot you know, cord. And so she's hanging on, and you, you can tell what's going to happen. She can't hang on. And the funny thing is nobody up there is helping her at all. She's just hanging there. And her hands, you can tell they're starting to slip, and her, one hand goes off, and she's one-handed, and then boom, she lets go. And this is the part where it gets bad. Because when you go off a tower and you have the, the harness around your ankles, guess what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to go head first. She started going feet first. So when she reached the full extent of the bungee, it snapped her body straight down. And then she was just flipping and flopping. I'm sure she spent many quality hours in a, a chiropractor office after that. And you could tell this was a horrific experience for her. But when I watched it, I thought, that's not unlike when you and I say, okay, Jesus, I will follow you. I will get to the top of the tower, and I will jump. And then halfway through the jump, you go, wait a second. Everything? You're going to have to, everything? No, not that. No, I, I got to hang on to someone. It's kind of like, okay, give me five bags, and I'll invest three of them. You'll get the majority, but I'm going to hold back two just for me. And when you and I do that, when we kind of say, okay, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm sacrificing risk, and deep down inside, if you're honest with yourself, you're like, no, I'm not. I'm holding back. I'm still holding back for safety's sake. I'm holding back because I'm afraid. When you and I do that, you know what it looks like? It looks like in our life we are grasping on to something that we're going to lose hold of, and then we lose hold of it, and it gets worse for us. If we go through life trying to hang on to the tower when Jesus says, jump, 
Let go. Risk everything. That's why Paul said, listen, if I die, I gain. What in the world is he talking about? He realized he had nothing to lose. If you and I have anything to lose in this life, then we haven't given it all to Jesus yet. We haven't. Because it all belongs to him. Isn't this a wonderful, uplifting message today? Only one more point, and then we'll, we'll move on from here. Look at verse 21, 20, verse 22. When Jesus returns, he may also be asking, did you remain faithful to me? His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Good and faithful servant. He says it twice. He says it one of the man who had five and then came back with ten, and the man who had two and came back with four. And so you... You see that, that there's this reward that, that, that the whole point was you overcame the fear of losing and you risk and therefore you gained. And because of that, I gained in the investment that I put in you. That is a job well done. That's why I invested you. Because I love you, but because I love others around you, I want that investment to come back to me. Now think about this. What he was talking about rewarding faithfulness. Faithfulness really has to do with you and I being obedient to the very end to what Jesus called us to. They were obedient to take the money they had and to risk it so that they could benefit their master. They were obedient. That's the true ultimate outcome of faithfulness is obedience. It's not obedience for a certain amount of time. It's obedience for a lifetime that I'm committed to doing this and therefore I'm all in. I'm, I'm going to invest everything that God has given me into the life he wants me to live, into bringing glory to him, into other people's lives and, and not worry about if somehow I'm going to lack because I won't. You can't give away what isn't ours. He will supply it. But you and I have to understand that what God is expecting of you and I is not to be the world's greatest evangelist, the world's greatest missionary, the world's greatest pastor, the world's greatest whatever you can feel. I'm just doing ministry-oriented things. He's not asking us to do that. See, sometimes people will read this parable and they will think, okay, well, the way it's kind of this pecking order, so there's five bag, bags of gold kind of people, and then there's two, and then there's one, almost like there's some people that are really like elite, and so God gives them more because they're better. No, this is not a, a comparison, but Jesus does say, according to their ability. So he's giving to you and I, investing us according to know, knowing the, what, the way he's wired us and how we're created, what we can achieve with what he has put into us. We are not in a race against anybody else but ourselves. We're not trying to beat out anybody else. We're not trying to be better. We're just trying to be obedient and faithful to Jesus. So we take whatever we have and we make the most of it for his glory. And we look at nobody else comparing ourselves because Jesus isn't going to compare us to anybody else except ourselves. So I learned this lesson. I learned this in, in, in high school basketball, one of the many lessons that I learned in high school basketball. I was never the best player on any team that I played on. I was always kind of middle of the road. And when I was in my junior year, I was on JV. I started, I was one of the better players. I wasn't the best player, but one of the better players. And then when I got to varsity my senior year, I wanted to play it's nothing worse than sitting on the bench in your senior year. But the, the one spot that I was really good at, there was another player, and he was the best player on all of our teams. Varsity, I mean, for years, he'd been like, he's the, he's the, like, the show. And so I knew I wasn't going to beat him out. But I knew there were other positions on the floor. And so over one summer, I made a commitment, and I learned every single position on the floor, offense and defense. So there's five on offense, five on defense. I learned every single one of them in and out. So that about a quarter of the way through the senior season, there was another position that I actually started to get better at, and I beat out a guy. And so for about three-fourths of my senior year, I started. I beat out another guy. And the highlight of my basketball career, I don't, honestly, I can't tell you if we won or lost the game. I probably should remember that. It's kind of important. I don't know. But the highlight of my basketball career was one game. Coach let me do this. I played all 10 positions on the floor in a game. All of them. I played point guard, which is usually for shorter, faster people. That's not me. I played center, which is for taller, bigger people. That's still not me. And I played every position on the floor that night. And I remember at the end of the game, I was like, that's it. All the work that I put in to learn the offense and the defense, every, and every position on every defense and every offense that we played, I knew them all. 
Because I knew if I did that, I would have the best chance of getting on the floor because no matter who got hurt or who got out, I could play that spot. I was never the most talented, but I was the most capable. And the same thing is true when you and I follow Jesus. He's not looking for the most talented person. He's looking for the most obedient, faithful person who is willing to respond to when somebody has to do something, you're saying, it's me. I'm the one. The investment you put in me, uh, you can trust that it's, it's worth your investment because I'm going to risk my life to follow you for the purpose of other people. See, if you and I would live that way, let me just give you a little insight. I want to see not just New Hope, but I want to see the church change. I don't, and I feel for my kids. I don't want my kids, and I know I'm guilty of it, I don't want my kids to grow up and say, man, all I ever got was going to church and being a good person was a Christian. I don't want that for them. I want them to be so passionately following Jesus because it's risky and dangerous and sacrificing and fulfilling and courageous because someday they want to stand before Jesus, not because mom and dad said so, but because they are passionately in love with Jesus and realize the investment he's put in them and they want to live their life that way. I don't want 20 and 30 something saying to me, I don't really get the church because it's boring and all it is is religion and all it is is rules. There has to be something more. Anybody in with me on that one? You don't have to be 20 or 30 to feel that way. You could be 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years old and say, yeah, it's kind of like, remember Caleb? Jeez. Caleb was like ancient. He's like in his 80s. He's like, come on, let's go. Another fight. I'll take it on. Why? Because he was so passionate about God. See, the, the greatest thing for you and I is it's good news that we want to hear from the God of the universe when he looks at us on that day when he returns and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. The words we don't want to hear is wicked and lazy. And Jesus makes it really clear, there's only two options. There are not multiple options. There's no middle ground. There is enter into your master's happiness or into darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are the only two options. But you and I can be assured if we're willing to risk and we'd be all in following Jesus, that we will hear, good and faithful servant. Well done. I'm going to ask you if you would just close your eyes as we conclude The reason I'm having you close your eyes is because I don't want your focus up here. I want your focus where you are right now with Jesus. Because I want to ask you a few questions that you're not, I'm not wanting you to answer me. I'm wanting you to answer these before the Lord right now so that you, he can do his work in you today. Because that's what it's about. It's about what he wants to accomplish in you today. So just with your eyes closed as you, you're going to just reflect on these for a few moments. The first one is, is relatively simple, but very important. Answer this honestly before Jesus right now. Have you fully trusted in Jesus' death for your forgiveness, for your sin, because you've realized that your sin has separated you from God? Is there an understanding in your heart and your mind that you realize your failure, your brokenness, your sin has separated you from God, and apart from Jesus doing what he did on the cross, and apart from you and I accepting that, believing in that, and trusting in that, we will continue to be separated from God forever. forever. Is there something in you? There may be, you might say, hey, I, I prayed a prayer, or I raised my hand in an invitation, or, or I, 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 I filled out a card, and whatever it is, but, but you, you, for you, we're beyond all those things that we do in church. Is there in you a confidence that knows I have fully trusted in him. I, have, I am all in with him. I have realized I need his sacrifice for my sin because I've been separated from God. Let me ask you a second question as you process that. If you say yes to that, then I ask you this question. Since that time or since that moment or since you've understood that, have you experienced a transformation in your life as a result? In other words, before you understood that, before you made a commitment to him in your life, is your life today different than it used to be? Not, not modified, not slightly adjusted, not changed just a little bit, not, not a nice new coat of paint on the outside, but deep down inside of you, is there something dramatically different about who you used to be? Have you been transformed? Because if you said yes to Jesus and you trusted him for your forgiveness, for his death on the cross then what he's done is he's deposited his Holy Spirit inside of you. 
And when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, nothing ever stays the same. Nothing can stay, stay the same. It all has to change. And therefore, you and I should be able to look back on our life before and say, yeah, wow, what a difference he has made in me. The, the, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is given as a deposit, which means it's a guarantee. It's some, his, he is present in us. He's making a difference in us today, which leads to the third question. Has that commitment to him and that transformation by him through his Holy Spirit caused me to overcome fear and risk everything for his purpose and his fame and his glory? You are not answering these questions for anyone else, but you are answering them honestly for yourself because Jesus is before you. There's an accountability before him, but the reason we're asking these questions is one of the the greatest tragedies about reading through this passage and even hearing this message is that you leave this place feeling a sense of guilt and shame that you're not a good enough Christian, therefore you have to try harder only to be back at the same place again because you've tried harder and you've only failed, not realizing that what Jesus is describing in this passage, the person who had the five and got the ten and who had the two and got the four, In them, they were able to overcome fear that the man who got one couldn't. And in overcoming that fear, they were willing to surrender their life in such a way that they belonged to Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus, the outcome of your life, guess what? Is risk without being limited by fear. Is sacrifice without grasping for your own happiness. It's joy without depending on your current circumstances to give you that. And those are only things that come from the inside out. They don't come from the outside. They don't come from doing better and working harder. They come from sacrificing and surrendering more so that God's Spirit transforms our soul. So today what God is calling you and I to is is not to work harder and be better Christians, but to surrender all of who we are, and if we haven't yet, it's time to let go of the platform. It's time to let go with both hands. It's time to jump fully into God's purpose for his glory and for for what he wants to do through making disciples in our lives so that the investment that he has someday is people that you can point to, that you know at least you had some role in their discipleship. You had some role in them understanding who Jesus is. That's the investment he's looking at in our lives. So Lord Jesus, today we thank you Lord, I I know in our own personal preference, it would be easier just to steer clear of these passages, to stay away because they're not easy, they're hard. But Lord, we have to come to grips with your words and what you've said to us. And so therefore today I pray that Lord, we would hear your voice. We would hear your words. We would respond to your spirit inside of us. And I ask Lord, for each person that knows that there are things that they have chosen not to do because of fear by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give them courage. You would give them strength beyond their own ability. You would let them see the fear that is in front of them and they would see your power and your might in comparison to that small fear and the result would be, Lord, they would overcome it. So that, Lord, for none of us, none of us will ever ever have to be bound or limited by fear, but Lord, only facing it and overcoming it and risking everything to follow you and therefore discovering what life is all about. We thank you, Jesus, for your words. Now, Lord, help us to live those out obediently by the power of your spirit who lives inside of us. In your name, amen.